It's always just a privilege to be here in Northern Virginia. Um, I've been dear friends, Kathy and I, with Brett and Cynthia for 20 years, Jim and Angie Critcher, 30-something years. Um, so it's always like coming home here. It's been such a privilege to watch this church grow from 100 to 150 to over 2,000 people, just a blessing, and it's really only beginning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this people. They love you. They love your word. It's always a, a privilege to be here. Amen. I want to share with you a message this morning that I've never shared before. It began to kind of birth in my spirit during the prophetic conference. I preached part of it there, though this message would stand alone. I encourage you to listen to the podcast from that conference. And you can, we'll start in the book of Ezra, chapter 4, verse 23. Let me set the stage for you. About 2,500 years ago, really 2,600 depending, give or take a few, a nation was basically and seemingly eradicated. The Babylonian armies came down and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, forcibly deported the people, um, ethnically cleansed many of them. Ten of their tribes had already disappeared under the mailed might of the Assyrian Empire. And it seemed like these people were gone. Yet they weren't God because God had a purpose for them that kept them buoyant even in the destruction of their culture. After 70 years in Babylon in fulfillment, a prophecy given by a prophet named Jeremiah, a man so frightfully accurate that when the king of Babylon conquered Jerusalem, he said, if that man don't mess with him, let him do whatever he wants. Just don't make him mad at us. And he prophesied the day would come after 70 years that a king would speak the word and they would go home. And so the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire and the great king of Persia stood and said, whoever wants to go home of the Jewish people may go. Over 40,000 came, left 70 years in Babylon with their children, grandchildren, families, and journeyed under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel and a priest named Joshua. In their heart, they wanted to create, recreate the spiritual life of their nation. When they got home, everything had changed. It had been repopulated with ethnicities that did not fear God. In fact, would be antagonistic to them. Their tribes had disappeared. Much of their ethnic identity just obliterated in that place. And the first thing they did is they built an altar. They just began to worship God. It says the fear of God fell on their enemies. Once they got that done before they thought of their own homes, they began to carefully lay the foundation of another temple. It's said that when only the foundation or the footings like on that building there were done, there was such a celebration that some of those that had seen the first temple sobbed for joy as they worshiped, others shouted for joy. It was such a cacophony of emotion, you could not tell the difference. But when that foundation was done, every power in hell hit them. Because the enemy realized if they built what God had called them to build, his kingdom would be rocked. As we open our story then in Ezra chapter 4, we find what it says. As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rahum and Shimshai, the secretary, and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. 
Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill under the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The people who had repopulated the land basically took legal action to stop Israel from building, and the king of Persia ordered them to stop. And for 16 years, they were halted. For 16 years, mothers would pass by those foundations with their children, and the kids would go, what's that mama like? Why is that sitting there? A sense of heartbreak set into the nation. Would they ever be able to build what God had spoken to them? What does that have to do with you and I today? Why would the Holy Spirit, after 41 years of preaching, give me this message? Well, maybe some of it seems obvious. Well, we're building a building. Yes, you are. And the enemy hates that building. Why would he hate it? I can remember standing with Brett and Cynthia, looking out over their flock of 100 people, laboring, raising the very disciples who'd be the leaders in this church today. And having a sense that one day I would look at thousands. That one day out of this small group, this great metroplex would be influenced. Now we stand in the fulfillment, at least partially, of that vision. And why is that house important? Because thousands and thousands of people will come there to receive a word that will transform their lives. But that's not the only thing God is building right now. In fact, for that building to be filled there's something else he's building. He's building your marriage. He's building your character. He's building your finances. He's building your employment. He's building your children. And he's building the spiritual building that he inhabits. And that's why I've entitled this message, Building Wars. How does the enemy resist us when we try to build what God requires? I subtitled it, Exposing the Plan of the Enemy to Delay Your Destiny. Many of you came to church beleaguered today. You felt a lot of resistance, and you can't quite put your finger on it. Some of you are facing a mountain of such size you feel dwarfed by it. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe there's some mountain between you and your spouse, some opposition that seems greater than you. I want to isolate the two ways that the enemy will attack God's plan to build something for you and through you. The first He attacks your position before God. Secondly, he attacks your power from God. Let's look there together. Look with me in Zechariah chapter 3 and 4. It's right at the end of the Minor Prophets. Um, Now remember, when the people had been stifled for 16 years and stopped building, God sent two prophets to help them. The first was Haggai. He was a great preaching prophet, and he basically told them, get your priorities right, You've built your homes, you've built your businesses, and the house of God stands in ruins still. Give to that and watch what God does. But Zechariah was a different kind of prophet. He didn't seem to be the preaching prophet that Haggai was. He was more of kind of a seer or a visionary, and he had an ability from God to look behind the scenes, to look beyond all the political manipulations and all the legal suits and find out how did this happen. And that's important because many of you are being attacked the same way they were. Now, the first vision he has is in Zechariah chapter 3, and he talks about God showing him something. He's probably in a dreamlike state, kind of half asleep, maybe kind of some kind of trance-like state, it seems, as we look in Zechariah 4. 
Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. It could be Jim LaFoon. It could be Brett Fuller. Could be Jewel Green. Could be Cynthia Fuller. Could be anyone here. Could be Daryl. Could be any of us. He showed me Joshua, who was the high priest, and we're all priests before God now, standing before the angel of the Lord. How many of you know worship is just an intimate thing? Angel of the Lord hears Jesus. He's standing before Jesus. What do you do when you stand before Jesus? You pray. You worship. But what you find out is even in this most intimate moment, even when you're in the presence of God, there is an attack of the enemy that's so subtle, but if you do not learn to recognize it, you'll lose your confidence in the very revelation God is trying to give you. It says right at his right hand, In the presence of God, Satan was standing there to accuse him. One of the enemy's favorite times to work on you is when you're trying to worship, trying to come into the word of God, trying to hear a message. How many of you have ever feel like you're hearing in stereo? Wait a minute, I'll define this. One hand, you're hearing God loves you and it's amazing and you're feeling the presence. But on the other side of you, there's just a little subtle whisper in your ear. You're no good. You failed God. You're not righteous. Reminding you about your past. And as much as you're trying to worship, there's this little bit of accusation filtering down into your spirit, reminding you of your past, reminding you of your present failures. Now, beloved, many times that's not just your own mind. That is the accuser himself coming to condemn you and to destroy your confidence. Some of you experience that today. Some of you, the reason you don't worship more is every time you try, something reminds you of your sin. Something reminds you that you're not worthy. Something wants to magnify just that problem you had this week. Many of you live there. Now, what is God's answer to that? Because here is the conundrum of this passage. There was a little truth in what the devil was saying. Verse 3 said Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. In the Hebrew, that's clothes covered in excrement. And he stood before the angel. I mean, he's not a perfect man. Makes me feel better personally. Got some unbelief, failed some. What is God's answer? Let this ring in your ears for a moment. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire of judgment? Beloved, no matter how the enemy is accusing you today, no matter how you may be faring in your faith, if you've trusted in Christ, his answer never varies. The Lord rebuke you, not Jim LaFoon, you, Satan. This is my son, my daughter, who I snatched from the fire. And even if there's a bit of smoke smell on them, it's immaterial. I rebuke you. Stop accusing them. I rebuke you. In fact, watch what God does next. He rebukes the devil and drives this accusation off. And the angel says in verse 4 to those who are standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. No matter how your week's been today, no matter what's ailing you, the Holy Spirit is here to speak these words. I've rebuked the devil, your mind, and I'm going to change you. I'm going to take off your filthy garments, no matter how you failed, how you've been tempted. Then he said to Joshua, then he said to Jim, then he said to Brett, then he said to Cynthia, see, I have taken away your sin, and I'm putting a whole new garment on you. 
I'm going to put my righteousness on you. And then I said, speaking of the prophet, and while you're at it, Lord, deal with his head, deal with his thought life and his mind, wrap up, take the old filthy turban off, unwind all that negativity and those unbelieving thoughts and just rewire him. Just do a little bit, a little, do a little Holy Ghost neurosurgery on him and let him think right. And all of a sudden you begin to realize when you come into the presence of God, he loves you. He's forgiven you. And that Jesus has made you worthy enough to come before him. And that word begins to come to you and accusation begins to fall away. And you're not condemned. And once he gets you there, he brings you to where he really wants to take you. Power to finish what he started. Now watch this. We come into Revelation 4 and things seemingly get even crazier. And the old prophet, in this trance, has another vision and comes back awake. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone wakened from sleep. He asked me, what do you see? Now, what he sees is kind of this crazy vision that he can hardly interpret. I answered, well, I see a solid gold lampstand. Can imagine that? With a bowl at the top and seven lamps. Now, how many of you have ever seen like a Jewish menorah? Raise your hand. This is a little different. It's seven branches but there's a giant bowl on top of it like a reservoir. And coming down from that bowl, every one of the seven candles has seven little spouts to bring the anointing and power of God to the old guy saying, man, what is this? Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right, one on the left. And he said, man, this is crazy. I see this spout. I get the candlestick. That's my nation. That's the church. That's what we're supposed to have anointing for. But then there are these big, giant olive trees. You know, the olive trees that Jesus prayed around are still in Jerusalem today. They go thousands of years, beloved, if the root system's right. They'll keep bearing olive oil, a picture of the Spirit's anointing from olives for just centuries. The old prophet goes, my goodness, look at those trees. Oil is pouring into this thing. What does this mean? I mean, he's incredulous. Where do I get this power? How do I refuel what God is doing? He looks at it all. He's a little bit in a quandary. And he go, I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these? He answered, you don't know what these are? Lord, beats me. What are these things? So he said to me, this is my word to Jim LeFoon. This is my word to Brett Fuller. This is my word to you, whoever you might be today. This is my word to you. It's not, it's not, says the Lord, by your might. It's not by your education. It's not by how smart you are. It's not by your power. That what I've called you to build is so resisted that no human power or wisdom can build it. Number one, that ought to make you feel good, especially if you're out of power when you're standing there. It's by my spirit says the Lord. He says, no matter what you're facing, it's not about how strong you are. No matter what is looming up over your life or your business or your finances or your church or your marriage today, it's not about how strong you are if it's going to be conquered. It's by my spirit. He said, what I'm showing you, Zechariah, is how to have the spiritual power you need to destroy this thing. And why I'm at it, let's get this personal. What are you, mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel? Imagine what mountain is looming in your way. 
For Zerubbabel, it was the whole weight of the Persian Empire. And they said, you can't build this building. For 16 years, they had stifled him. It seemed impossible. What is in front of you? I think of some of the mountains I've walked through, my wife having cancer, epilepsy, sons fighting to see them alive, my own health destroyed by hepatitis, laying there dying. I think of all the mountains that have been in front of me. And God says, Jim, what is that in front of you? Nothing beginning to get a perspective. What's in front of me is nothing to God. What seems to be looming over me, what seems to be in my path, man, maybe it's a mountain range. You feel like, man, pastor, the Himalayas from hell are in my way today. It's just mountain after mountain after mountain. God says, you mountain in front of my servant. <clears throat> you mountain in front of my daughter. He goes on to say this. You'll become level ground. That mountain in front of you is going to become a highway. Then you're going to bring out the capstone, the finished product, the little marker that says done, to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. In the Hebrew, that means grace, grace, unmerited favor, unmerited power, unmerited transformation. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will complete it. Hold your hands up like this. Look at that. Take a look at these hands. What God started through you and in you, he's going to finish. Beloved, let me tell you something. God says, that which I start, I finish. Paul said, I'm confident. I think Pastor Brett spoke it earlier, that he who's begun a good work in you will complete it. See these hands? God's going to use this. What he's called you to start, he's called you to finish. You can build that marriage, build that life, build those finances, build that building, build in the city. Now, how? How did you get this power? Where do we get it? How do we face challenges beyond any human? How do we look at some looming problem and say, you're my highway. Let's find out. Zachariah's got this deep on his mind. By then, verse 11, then, the, then, then asked, I asked the angel, okay, I still don't get these olive trees. What are these massive olive trees on the right and left? Again, I ask him, what are those two branches beside the two golden pipes? And they're pouring out anointing and power and oil. He replied, you don't get it yet? You don't get what I'm trying to show you? I don't. So he said, those two olive trees are the two who've been anointed to serve me. And all of a sudden, Zechariah dawns on him. Wait a minute here. You better remember the, psalm, the psalmist had likened humans to olive trees if they're planted right in God's house. He begins, as I get it. That one olive tree is old condemned Joshua who could barely stand before the Lord. The other olive tree is Zechariah, who's been overwhelmed and not been able to finish his leadership task for 16 years, and now they're dripping with oil. What's God trying to show me? I get it. When we're rooted and planted by God, the supernatural result is his power flowing out of our lives into what he's called us to do. And the old prophet begins to realize, because all of a sudden, verses like, Psalms 52, 8, which you can turn to, just begin to leap up in his spirit. Psalms 52, 8 is an interesting verse. The psalmist says this, 
But I'm like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. David wrote this psalm at a pretty tough time. Doeg the Edomite had just come to the house of God and slaughtered the majority of the priesthood. And David says this, my life's under assault, but I'm like, watch me, beloved, like an olive tree planted in the house of God. What do olives do? Produce olives, which produce oil, which is a picture of anointing. Now in Psalms 92, the psalmist gets a bit more specific, so we'll look at that, then I'll give another scripture and summarize and put this together for you. In Psalms 92, the psalmist says this, and I love this. He says, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. A big old palm tree could have 600 pounds of dates a year in the middle of a small oasis in the heat of the desert. They'll grow like the cedar of Lebanon. How? Planted in the house of the Lord, flourishing in the courts of God. They'll bear fruit even when they're old. They'll stay young all the time. Now, how's this happen? How does God help you root in to this power? How do you do it? Where will you find it? Where will you find the power you need to live this way? It's very simple. Once you've been rooted into Christ and you're born again, the very next thing on God's agenda is to root you, to plant you into a house, a local church. That didn't mean to have you visit a local church. That didn't mean to have you skip around. You know, a lot of people double, triple dippers. They kind of stay in kind of the denomination of their, of their childhood because they don't want mom and dad kind of mad. So they kind of keep that membership and go back on Holy Sundays and, you know, and big eating blessings and go back and celebrate with a kin. But where they're really getting fed and watered, beloved, is a some church somewhere else. Now, the problem is church hopping is different. When I think of planting and all the plants I plant in my yard, I've never seen them hop out and go looking for another bed if it'll dry in my house. I mean, I mean, just imagine all you planted, your, your roses are marching down. We go into the neighbor's house, a little, dry, a little too hard here. I mean, man, there, there goes my rose bush. My, honey, where's my bush going? I mean, can you believe that, baby? I mean, my elm tree just left. There goes my crepe myrtle. That's how a lot of Christians are. The problem is, if you hop from place to place, you'll never have the roots you need to bear fruit. And sooner or later, calamity is going to strike while you're in between your rootings. You just got to plant somewhere. You got to let your roots down somewhere. Why? Because it's in the house of God that you learn how to let your roots into Christ. You say, man, I just feel better when Pastor Brett talks about the word. Maybe if I read it myself, I might feel the same way on Tuesday I feel on Sunday. Woo, when Tiffany worships, I just feel something. Oh, that worship team. Oh, man, he's playing that. He's playing that piano. Perhaps if I open my mouth, do something other than griping, maybe worshiping in my car, something might happen to me. Perhaps if you practice what was preached on Monday through Saturday, your roots would go down so deep that you'd bear fruit at work, that your life would be filled with power, that there'd be anointing to face that. And you'd begin to live in Psalms 1, 1 through 3, where it says, blessed is that human that doesn't walk in the way of scorners, doesn't sit with foolish people, doesn't walk in wickedness. Oh, no, no, no. They so delight in God's word. They so delight in fellowshipping with him. They so delight in speaking that word and worshiping that they're just like a tree whose roots are planted by streams of living water. In other words, they've rooted so down in Christ that the very eternal life of God is always flowing into them. They're always fresh. There's always faith. There's always fruit. And no matter what comes, there's enough anointing to shatter it along the way. Join me up here, Pastor Brett. Beloved, God's building a lot of things here.
as a family, you're building a building where the lives of countless thousands will be altered. Thousands of people attend these services in a given month. But he's also building something today in your life, your marriage, your children, your character. And many of you say, you've been talking to me, Pastor Jim. Man, the enemy's been condemning me, accusing me. I don't feel worthy of this destiny, Pastor Jim. If that was not enough, I've got so much opposition, I don't know how my marriage is going to change. Pastor Jim, how can God rescue my finances from this mountain of debt? I mean, my child, that kid's got a mountain of problems. How can I help him, Pastor? It worked. I don't even know if my company or my job is going to make it. You know, beloved, everything you need is right in that root. And as you allow your roots to go down into that living water, because you've learned how to be planted in things, that power flows, that faith flows. You say today, Pastor Jim, I'm in a building war right now. The enemy is trying to delay what God's called me to build. Pray for me. If that's you, put your hand up on to pray for you right now. Let me see your hands. Holy Spirit, what a great people. Many of them have been accused even walking in the church today. Others are facing some insurmountable mountain. But I'm now calling your grace, your strength. Let them find you afresh. Let it be said of them what God started through my hand. He finished through my hand. Many of you, I grew up with, remember that Popeye the sailor man? You ever go with Popeye the sailor? I'm strong to the finish because I ate my spinach. Tell you a secret, beloved. That word, worship, fellowship, as you let your roots down into Christ and those things, you'll have everything you need to finish what he started through you, for you,